You turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, text you just heard read, looking this morning at verses 7 through 13. Clay is one of the most common substances on the surface of the earth. In its natural form, it is close to worthless, but in the hands of a skillful potter, a master artisan, it can take shape and grow and develop into a masterpiece worth thousands of dollars. One of the greatest potters in the last hundred years was a Japanese craftsman named Shoji Hamada. Uh, He specialized in ceramics uh, used in the traditional Japanese tea ceremony. And a simple but elegant teapot crafted by his skillful hands has sold as high as $5,000. Imagine taking clay from the earth, putting your skillful hands on it, and shaping it to something of that level of value. And perhaps you've seen a master potter at work at his wheel maybe, spinning the the wheel with his feet, throwing the wet clay in the center and applying his skillful hands to the wet lump. And it rises up off the wheel as if it were being raised from the dead, from an amorphous lump to a certain specified height that he knows is mine. As the craftsman continues to apply moisture and skillful pressure, a delicate vessel appears before your eyes. Now, this process has been used for millennia of human history. And the analogy between God's skillful work on His people And the potter's craftsmanship with clay is ancient as well. That analogy has been around a long time. Through Jeremiah the prophet, God taught this kind of living parable. Jeremiah 18. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of God at work in His people, shaping them for His purposes. So it was with the twelve apostles in the hands of the Master, Jesus Christ. They were just wet clay until He shaped them to be leaders of the church whose lives and doctrines would change the history of the world. Today, we're going to see another major step in the training of the twelve as Jesus sends them out on their own for the first time to do ministry. It's their first solo flight, a major part of their apprenticeship. And it offers for us timeless lessons to all who carry on in their evangelistic work in our own generation. We may well ask, not only why did Jesus train the twelve like this, but why did the Holy Spirit want us to know about it by putting it in Mark's gospel? Those are both very important questions. For we are all called to this work. We are called on to make disciples 
of all nations. The church is called to the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything Christ has commanded. We're called to the, to the Great Commission. And like the Twelve, we need to be shaped and molded for this work. Do you feel it? Oh, God, work on me. Make me an evangelist. Make me effective in sharing my faith. I want to be shaped. Would you please train me? Like all of them, we, we can at some point feel overwhelmed by this work and feel as the Apostle Paul said concerning the ministry of the gospel, who is equal to such a task? You need to feel that. You should not feel, hey, I can do this. I got this, this whole evangelism thing. No, who is equal to such a task? But in the hands of the master potter, we can be shaped and prepared and be used to be the instruments for the salvation of people in our generation, okay? So this is Christ's strategy to reach the world, Christ's strategy to reach the world. Jesus, in his brief time on earth, had a very limited scope to his evangelistic ministry, very limited. He said very plainly in Matthew 15, 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So that was just while he was on earth, that's what he was sent to do. But he knew very well that it had been planned before the foundation of the world that he would be the savior of the world. Isaiah 49, 6, God the Father speaking within the Trinity to God the Son before Jesus was ever incarnate. Isaiah 49, 6, 600 years before the birth of Jesus. God said, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus, the light for the Gentiles. So, to that end, Jesus had always intended to, to call and train and send out followers into the world as his messengers, part of the plan. Now, this passage represents, as I've said, a major moment in the training of the twelve, the shaping, the preparing of the twelve, and a major turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Up to this point, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been doing everything himself. He's done all the healing. He's done all the driving out of the demons. He's done all the teaching. He has stood in the gap alone with no one joining in because they were not ready. But now the time has come to prepare the twelve for the role that they're going to play for the rest of their lives. Now this was always his intention. Mark 1, 16 and 17, you remember that? As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for their fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. We didn't come back to that, that verse, but I'm just saying from the very beginning, this was Jesus' intention. Now, as he continued to go, as we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 4, a critical chapter, getting them ready for this work, the cycle of parables that he teaches there, parable of the seed and the different kinds of soils. You remember that? That was fundamentally about evangelism. And then the statement about no one lighting a lamp and putting it under a bowl. Instead, it's to give light to everyone in the house. In Mark's gospel, the context of that statement is, I don't intend for my parables to stay, to stay, to stay secret. I want everyone in the world to understand them. I want my teachings to shine throughout the world. 
And then the statement about the farmer planting a, a seed in the ground and, and night or day, whether he sleeps or get it, gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, so he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces uh, grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And, and as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it, the harvest has come. That's evangelism. But it's putting us in our place saying we can't do any of the growth. Only God can. We have a role to play. We can plant the seed. We can harvest by bringing people to faith in Christ. It's evangelism. So also the parable of the mustard seed. Setting expectations. Things are going to start small. And then they're going to get bigger and bigger. And bigger and bigger. And more and more glorious. And so it is again and again. It's not just one time. Over and over in different cities and different tribes and languages and cultures. It's the, the work of the gospel starts small. It's unimpressive. And then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's a lasting principle. All of this was getting them ready for evangelism and for missions. Now, that his handling of the twelve is a timeless paradigm for every generation that followed, getting them ready to do evangelism too. That's the answer. The second question, why does the Holy Spirit have this in the Gospel of Mark and also in Matthew and Luke? Why does he have it in here? Get us ready. But there are some key exceptions we are not apostles, all right? Everyone understand that. I'm not an apostle. You're not apostles. So there's going to be some significant differences. We need to understand the difference, but also sit under the lessons as well. Every one of Jesus' true disciples has a role to play in the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We all have a role to play. Jesus made this very plain, Matthew 12, 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. What is gathering with Jesus if not evangelism and missions? So we're not active in evangelism missions. You are scattering. It's one or the other. There's no third option. You're either gathering with Jesus or you're scattering. One or the other. So we have a role to play. Now Jesus is doing this gathering uh, through evangelism through missions, and we need to be active in this. And his pattern of training in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that pattern is timeless. It's the Bible sufficient. You want to know how do I get ready? What do I need to understand? What's my technique, my approach? All of it's in the Bible, sufficient. But there are some key exceptions. The apostles were unique. We need to understand the uniqueness of the apostles. They're unique compared to the centuries of followers who would take up the mantle of world evangelization. First of all, they were eyewitnesses of Jesus. Eyewitnesses of his life, his death, his resurrection. We aren't. We've never seen Jesus. Their eyewitness testimony is the foundation of the entire New Testament. All of the 27 books in the New Testament come ultimately from apostolic teaching. And all of the succeeding generations of Christians have based their theology on the teaching ministry of the apostles. But that's not our role. We don't have that role. Their authoritative teaching would therefore shape the doctrine of the church for all succeeding generations. They were given the power to bind and to loose They're given authority we don't have. Doctrinal statements that everyone who followed uh, had to obey. We don't have that role. 
Furthermore, in this text, they were given supernatural power to drive out demons and heal every disease and sickness among the people. These were signs that the Apostle Paul said, mark out an apostle. Well, that clearly implies most disciples didn't have them. If everybody had them, then it wouldn't mark out an apostle. So they're unique. None of these things are true of us. We are not the twelve. We are not, Ephesians 2, the foundation of the church as they were. But having said all that, there are some common aspects to the lives and ministries of the twelve apostles, and on these we're going to focus for this sermon. In their general calling to preach the gospel and win lost people of faith in Christ, and also to warn those who reject the, uh, the gospel of the grave danger of that rejection, the calling to show compassion to the hurting and the suffering of the world, the calling to live holy lives above reproach, to be willing to suffer for the gospel, and many other details beside. In this way, they are patterns and they are examples for all of us. So we're going to walk through that. We're going to walk through that now. And for the rest of the sermon, what I'm going to do is derive from the text, just coming up out of the text, timeless lessons, ten lessons uh, that were zeroed in on the apostles, and then at the end, very briefly, I'm going to run through them again and just translate them over to us so that we can put them into practice. All right, so number one, prepared by Jesus. Verse seven, calling the twelve to him. So before Jesus could send them out, he had to call them to him. And this is bigger than just one day he said, hey, everybody, come and listen to me. It's bigger than that. He's calling them to follow him through repentance and faith. They had to be disciples of Christ. All of their mission for Christ flows out of their relationship with Christ. All of their mission for Christ flows up out of their relationship with Christ. Now, Mark 3.14, it says he appointed 12 designating them apostles, listen, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Do you see the two-step? Be with him, go out and preach. Jesus is going to state it even more emphatically in John's gospel the night before he was crucified with this beautiful image, John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You want to be fruitful evangelistically, you have to abide in Jesus by faith in Jesus. So everything they will do in their mission, they will do because they first saw him do it. Everything they will teach in their mission, they will teach because they first heard him say it. And so we see in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, stages of their preparation. Didn't happen all at once. So he's getting them ready. Uh, First, their initial faith in Christ. They had to follow Jesus initially. I think perhaps the best uh, account of that is in John's gospel. John 1, 35 through 37. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, himself had disciples. He had people who followed him, who were learning from him. And two of those disciples heard John say, when he saw Jesus passing by, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They heard him say that. It's the second time they'd heard it. When the two disciples heard John say this, they followed Jesus. There's clear indication that these are two of the twelve. We don't know who they are, but probably John was one of them. And so they first were following John the Baptist. Now they're following Jesus. Jesus saw them following. This is the beginning of the whole conversation. It's just so beautiful. Jesus turned around. 
Jesus' first words in John's gospel, what do you want? <laughs> it's kind of anticlimactic. John's gospel, what do you want? Um, but it's just these two disciples following Jesus, and, and they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said, come and see. And they spent time with him. It was just simple time. Stunning to think such a filtered, edited, carefully chosen gospel as the fourth gospel is, that account made it in there. Because I think that was John's first time with Jesus, and there's no way he's cutting that out. No way. You ask me what was my first time listening to Jesus talk, sitting with him, spending time. It was just a simple time. We had a meal together. We just had some time together. And then, as we've already noted, he called them to make a significant sacrifice, to leave their jobs Mark 1, 16 through 20, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you to become fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So they had to leave their family, they had to leave their jobs, and do something different. I would say parenthetically, one of the number one reasons we don't evangelize is we don't make time for it. We don't make sacrifices for it. We're busy with our lives. We're busy with our jobs. We're busy with what we're doing. I'm just asking you to think about what that's going to look like when Jesus asks you about it on Judgment Day. Just asking if do you think that's going to wash on Judgment Day. Hey, we were, we were too busy to share our faith. We're too busy to make the changes or the sacrifices needed. They followed him. Then, he, then they're there all the time with him, and he, they're listening to the general training that he gives to all the crowds. They're, they're listening. Uh, they hear Jesus' words day after day. They, they hear what he says. They observe his miracles. They see all the way that he interacted with people. They saw the glory of Christ in everyday life situations. They saw his demeanor, his character, his love, just the way he dealt with people. They're learning. And then came that time when the 12 themselves were identified out of the larger mass of disciples. Disciples are just followers, big group of them. But then one night, Jesus goes up on a mountain. He spends all night praying, comes back down and call, calls all of the disciples that were there to him and chose out of them 12. Mark chapter 3. And he called them apostles, which means sent ones, like ambassadors, sent ones. They hadn't been sent anywhere yet. <laughs> that's in our text today and then beyond. But that's what they're going to be. They're going to be the sent ones. And then, then he gives them more and more specialized training. He focuses on them. He's got his inner circle. The 12 are the inner circle. Then there's the inner inner circle, which is Peter, James, and John. He gave even more kind of time to them. But he's focusing on them. And they got all of these special instructions Mark 4, 34, he did not say anything to them, the crowd, without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Insider information. So he's giving them specialized training. And now, practical apprenticeship. All right? This trial mission. I can just say to you directly, you can't learn evangelism in a classroom alone, studying techniques. Can't just can't do it here. You know, it, you can do some things. You can learn some things that you can say, questions to ask, memorize the gospel outline. You can do all that. But you got to go out. You got to go out and try it. You got to learn by doing. And so that's what's happening here. He's sending them out. 
And then the final commissioning after his death, after his resurrection, 40 days of training, and then he ascends to heaven. His final words, the Great Commission. All four Gospels have a different version of the Great Commission. Mark's version is Mark 16, 15, and 16. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel, the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. That's the Great Commission, sent out. And they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Acts says it, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Without the Spirit's power, we cannot be witnesses, and the Spirit is given to do this work in us and through us. So, step by step, like a master craftsman, Jesus is shaping and training and preparing them for this work. Then he sends them out, sent out by Jesus. Uh, Verse 7, calling the twelve to him, he sent them out, sent them out physically. This is essential to Jesus' plan, as I just said. The world will not come to the gospel. The gospel has to go to the world. We have to bring it out. We have to, we will not reach Durham by hoping Durham comes here. Some will. I assume every week, including today, that God has brought some people here that are as yet unconverted. I assume that, and I preach the gospel. But the overwhelming majority of people that we're going to reach with the gospel, we will have to go out to where they are. We'll have to go out and find them, talk to them. And so, sent out. So he sends them for this apprenticeship. Thirdly, preach the gospel. Okay, okay, I realize. You're looking, well, pastor, that's not in the text. Well, it's not. It's not in Mark, but it's in Matthew and Luke, so I'm good with it. Are you guys okay with that? If it wasn't in, it's not in Mark, but it is in Matthew and Luke. I believe there's a division of labor with the gospels. Mark had his job to do. Matthew had his. Luke had his. I'm good with using them all. Okay? Now, I don't have time to preach four Gospels week after week after week. You're already, some of you, wondering, when are we ever going to start picking up the pace? And Mark, we're only in chapter 6, and it's been six years. It's not been six years. All right? But we're going to go however much pace we go. But I'm going to occasionally reach out to Matthew and Luke, and I'm going to tell you, these guys were sent out to preach the Gospel. They were sent out to preach the Gospel. And it's pretty clear from Mark 16, 15, and 16, which I've already quoted, Jesus makes it very plain there, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. All right? Is that good? We're good with that. Preach the gospel. Preach the message of salvation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. So this was preaching a message for the purpose of saving lost people from their sins and from judgment from God. That's what they were being sent out to preach. This is the good news of the gospel. Sinners can be forgiven. They can be reconciled to God by simple faith in Jesus. Repenting of their sins, turning away from their corruptions and their wickedness, turning to God, receiving from Him forgiveness all of all their sins, past, present, and future, by faith in Christ. That's the same message Jesus was preaching day after day. Mark 1.15, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He did that every day. So he's sending them out to do the same thing. Now essential to that is the good news he said to the paralytic. You remember the guy that was carried by his four friends? Lowered down through the roof. Lowered down right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, 
he said to the paralyzed man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And then he did the miracle to prove that he had the authority, the right to forgive sins. We're going out to proclaim that Jesus has the right to forgive people's sins. That was it. Now, of course, it goes without saying, this message wouldn't be complete until Jesus actually died on the cross, shed his blood on the cross, and then rose again in space and time in history. So I don't know that they preached the same message at this point that they would later preach after Jesus had ascended. They could from the prophetic scripture, but it could be they were just doing some of what John the Baptist was doing, calling people to repent and trust in the one who is coming. But the final message would be, would be written in the blood of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that message would be consummated and completed once Jesus had actually died and risen again. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day raised from the dead according to the scriptures. That's the gospel message. So at this point, the 12 are not prepared to preach that in the same way they would later, but they were sent out to preach. Good news. And we should do it joyfully, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring glad tidings, who proclaim salvation. What what a wonderful work we have to do. So however nervous you feel when you're doing evangelism, don't let it show on your face. You've got good news to tell, so be happy. Be evidently filled with hope. Give people a sense you're excited about your future. You should be. Your future, if you're a Christian, your future is bright. You're going to heaven. You're going to a glorious place. You should be filled with hope. You should be filled with so much hope, people ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have. So just be happy. It's good news. But they went out and they called for repentance. Look at verse 12. They went out and preached that people should repent. Essential to the good news is the bad news. And the bad news is we have sinned against the king of the universe. We are lawbreakers. We have broken God's laws, the Ten Commandments. We've broken all of them. If you know what to look for, we've broken them all multiple times. And we have broken the two great commandments. We have not loved God. We have not loved others. We are lawbreakers. And the wages of sin is death. And we deserve to die, not just physically, but eternally. We're under great danger because of this. And people must turn from sin. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus Christ preached repentance. So the 12 apostles preached that people should repent. Now, this is the very thing that enraged a lot of people. People don't want to hear that bad news. They don't want to hear that they're going to be condemned to hell if they don't repent. But these 12 did not go out and tickle people's ears with a, with a fluffy message. They told them to flee the wrath to come and that the king of the ages, the king of the universe, the holy God that gave us these laws is willing to forgive through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But they have to repent. Fifth, they were paired up. They were paired up. Verse 7, calling the 12 to him, he sent them out two by two. There is such wisdom to this, isn't there? I mean, evangelism's hard. Isn't it nice to have the fellowship of a partner? 
who after someone trashes you and treats you badly, you can walk off together and talk to each other and say, well, that was rough. <laughs> that, was, that was rough. You good, brother? I'm good. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. Let's pray for him. I mean, but when you're alone, it's easy, easier to get picked off by Satan. You get discouraged. You get down. And so he sends them off two by two. Also, there's a kind of a legal aspect to this. Every matter is established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So they're going out as witnesses together to say, hey, this is true. These things that we're saying is true. Next, we see the power to heal, verse uh, 7. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. Again, Matthew gives us the fuller account. Matthew 10:1. he called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So Mark doesn't tell us that, but it is true. It wasn't just exorcisms they were sent out to do. They went out and did this comprehensive healing ministry like Jesus had been doing. And it's corroborated by verse 13 in our account. So look down at verse 13. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So there it is. They were doing this healing ministry. Jesus is conferring on the apostles supernatural power similar to his own. Now these miraculous powers, as I said, established the unique authority of the apostles to preach the word. They, it established their authority to drive out demons who were gripping people, holding people in their dark grip. They had the power to break that grip. Evangelism is fundamentally a rescue effort from Satan's dark kingdom into the kingdom of light. And they had the power to do that, to break Satan's power, demon's power, with the authority of Jesus Christ. But these healings also give a picture of Jesus' compassion. Jesus cared about people who are hurting. And when we go out and evangelize, we need to find out what sin is doing in people's lives. How is sin breaking your world apart? What is sin doing in your marriage? What is sin doing in your family? What is sin doing to you? What patterns of addiction? I'm not saying we're going to necessarily ask Come on out with it. What are your addictions? Maybe you can have that conversation, but just knowing that they are getting crushed and trampled by Satan and by sin, just know that. Sin is hurting them. Jesus had compassion for people. He had compassion for people that are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, the present-day church is not called to do this kind of apostolic healing. I'm not getting into all that today, friends. I did that. You want to hear my sermons in 1 Corinthians on, on sign gifts? Go over there. I, I did, I, you know, long debate. What I'm saying is pretty clearly we're not called on to do apostolic healings like they did. It's a unique moment in time. But these apostolic healings, in every case anyway, pointed to the real healing, which I think Chase referred to, Luke 5. It's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Every sinner that repents has been spiritually healed. Do you see that? It's a healing work Jesus has done in their souls. And so this is a picture of that healing. Next we see purity from possessions. Verse 8 through 10. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money for your belts. Wear sandals but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. So Jesus is calling them to a radical trust relying on God to meet their needs. We tend to be anxious about our lives, what we'll eat or drink, and about our bodies, what we'll wear. We are so worried about us. The apostles were sent out in a radical display of God to meet their needs. No extra equipment, 
No bread, no bag, no money, no extra tunic. It was a life of simplicity, freedom from materialism. They're not bringing any money, and they're not going to charge any money for the healings. Do you know how much money they could have made? I mean, think about it. Think about that woman with the bleeding problem, and she'd spent everything she had, and she didn't get better. Imagine having the power of God to heal every disease and sickness and say that'll be a denarius. Do you think people would have paid? Oh, you better believe they would have paid. But Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. You're not to charge anything for your healings. They're modeling Christian contentment. They're modeling a lifestyle of simplicity. They're not in it for the money. They're not charlatans. They're not frauds. 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul says, Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. We're not in it for the money. But we speak in Christ with sincerity as men sent from God. We don't want your money. We want you to be saved and go to heaven. We want your fellowship for all eternity. That's what we want. We don't want your money. And what is this one house rule? If you go in a village or a town and somebody takes you in, stay there until you leave that town. What's this one house rule? Well, how would it feel for your host family if you went and said, by the way, there's a, a nice villa right on the sea and they've invited us. We're going to be there the rest of the time. It's like, look, that's not why you're there. When you find a place that will put you up, stay there. At the end of the day, eat a meal with them and go to bed. The next day, do it again. And guess what? In, in Matthew 10, 42, he says, the people that do that for you, that put you up and feed you and do all that support ministry stuff, will get the same reward you get. How about that? That's a good deal. The support enabling ministries are equally rewardable as the upfront preaching ministries. That's an incredibly important principle. Very important. Now, is Jesus permanently calling his messengers to a lifestyle of poverty, as in the style of medieval monastic orders that took vows of poverty? No, he's not. He's not. He's not calling them to that asceticism. Later in Luke 22, uh, verse 35, 36, Jesus asked him, When I sent you without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. But he said, But now, if you have a purse, take it. Oh, stop there. If you have a purse this time, take it. Interesting. If you have a bag, take it. So different orders next time. So this was just for the first time. Now, the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention sends out teams to cities to make commitments. Uh, They make commitments. The IMB makes commitments to care for their needs materially, financially. Average cost to send a unit, an individual missionary uh, with the IMB is $60,000 a year for a couple $120,000 a year. And beyond that, it's health insurance, travel, um, medical emergencies, different things like that. That's, that's the money. So, no, we do not believe that we're called to a lifetime of mendicant, you know, begging literally on the streets. Like, you know, you find a way to get on a transatlantic ship somewhere down in the cargo hold. You end up somewhere in Singapore, and then you sleep on a park bench and start begging while you preach the gospel. No, that's not 
the pattern. I think those medieval monks that took those vows of poverty were misreading Scripture. But I think the idea of a simple lifestyle and not in it for the money, that is a timeless principle. Then he gives power to warn. Look at verse 11. If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. The Jews would do this. They'd go over into uh, pagan lands, and when they came back from Samaria, they came back from Moab or whatever, they'd do this shaking the dust stuff, right? Say, may the dust of paganism be cleansed from my body. So I'm not in any way linked with all their wickedness. But here's the thing. These apostles are being sent to who? To Jews. And if they will not welcome you, and if they will not listen to your words, treat them like pagans. Say you're outsiders. If you will not listen to the message of the Messiah, I'm going to shake the dust off of them. And it's also a warning of coming judgment of the wrath of God. Because it says in Matthew 10, 15, I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. It is true that I believe judgment on judgment day is proportional to the amount of biblical knowledge that people had and rejected it. The more biblical knowledge they have and reject it, the worse it will be for them on judgment day. Therefore, be warned, those of you that are growing up in Christian families and have Christian parents but are as yet unconverted, the worst place to go to hell from is a Christian, a good Christian family because you have had the gospel lived out in front of you. And so, shake the dust off your feet. Again, Mark 16, 15, and 16. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Condemned means sent to eternal conscious torment and hell. That's what we're saved from. That's the gospel. And we have a responsibility to tell people the truth. We have to let them know it's not okay to reject this message. May God give us grace to do that. All right, so what happened? Well, their obedience led to fruitfulness. The disciples obeyed, and God blessed with amazing results. Verse 13, they drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. So we don't have the full records of their works here, but later we have the Acts of the Apostles. And we have a fuller record of, of some of their stories, some of their stories, and we have people being one, we have churches being planted, heaven We're getting the whole story. I want to know what all 11 of the good apostles did and all the ways God used them. Not just from tradition or from even church history. I want the whole thing. I want all the details. So these guys were getting groomed and prepared and trained and sent out. Finally, accountability. Jesus is the one who sends us. We go back. Look at verse 30. I know it's not in our text today. But this is is them coming back. So look at Mark 6.30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. So here's the thing. Judgment day is coming. 2 Corinthians 5, probably the most intensive chapter on evangelism in in, in the New Testament. Different details. But one of the things Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. We're going to give Jesus an account. Does that include all of the evangelistic encounters he set up for us ahead of time? Ephesians 2.10. 
got things ready for us to share the gospel? Will he ask us about that? Will he talk to us about opportunities we had in Durham to win the lost? Yes, he will. Accountability. All right, so those are the 10 lessons. Let's finish by applying them quickly to ourselves. First of all, prepared by Jesus. First of all, recognize that if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, he is calling you first to himself, not to evangelism. You're not saved by your evangelism. You are saved by faith in Christ. So come to Christ, repent of your sins, trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, and then feel that love relationship. Have that testimony of the Spirit inside your heart that you are a child of God, regardless of how well you do in evangelism. Come to Christ, draw near to Christ, and then let your evangelism flow out of abiding in Him. It's the best way, the only way really to do evangelism. Secondly, sent out by Jesus. Ask Christ to send you out in His name to win lost people. Understand that you must be active in gathering scattered sinners. Say, say to him, here am I, send me. Send me somewhere today. You know what you're going to find? You're going to find that you are going there anyway. Right, tomorrow morning, you're going to get in your car and go somewhere probably. Maybe. But probably you will. Jesus is sending you somewhere. You're likely to interact with some people when you get there. So, wait a minute, Pastor. You're talking about work? Yeah. Gas station? Sure. Supermarket? Yeah, why not? Taking your garbage out to the street and you see your neighbor taking his garbage out to the street? Sure. God, send me. Send me. Thirdly, (laughs) preach the gospel. Preaching the gospel. When you go to lost people, preach the timeless, unchanging gospel. The good news of forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. We have the completed message now. We're not wondering. We know Christ has actually died. He shed his blood on the cross so that guilt, our guilt would be atone for. Preach that gospel. Preach Christ resurrected. Fourthly, call people to repent. Be bold to do this. Use the law. Use the Ten Commandments and the Two Great Commandments. Everything you need to bring people to repentance is in there. Study the law and apply it. Do law work on them and call them to repent. Fifthly, pair it up. Don't be a lone ranger evangelist. I mean, some of the stuff we're going to do is alone. But find, find somebody that can hold you accountable and say, hey, let's go out. Let's go do some things. Let's take some faith steps. Let's find some opportunities to share the gospel. Hey, church, let's do this together. What do you say? Let's reach Durham together. Let's find ways for us to share the gospel together. Six, power to heal. Hmm. What am I going to say about this one? Come to the healing class uh, Tuesday evening, and I'll give you apostolic healing powers. That is not happening. All right, strike that. No. But remember what I said, two things. First of all, a display of Christ's compassion to the way that sin has crushed people. Can we do that? Yes, we can do that. We can find ways that sin is hurting people's bodies and their lives, and let's step in and find ways to minister. Secondly, the real healing is still spiritual. It's not the health you need a doctor, it's the, it's the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Seventh, purity from possessions. Ask the Lord to show you the way your materialistic lifestyle or materialistic ambitions and desires are hindering your evangelistic life. Say, Lord, show it to me. How am I orchestrating my life primarily for money and not for winning lost people? Show it to me. I think it probably is the single greatest practical difficulty our church has when it comes to evangelism. Number eight, power to warn. Tell people the truth about hell. 
tell people the truth about eternal conscious torment and the penalty of damnation. Don't be afraid to do it. Tell the truth to them. Number nine, obedience leading to fruitfulness. Move out. Do something that God calls you to do. Act. And, and be bold and see what God will do, how he can use you. And then finally, meditate on your accountability to Jesus. Picture yourself giving Jesus an account for everything that you've done in the body, whether good or bad. First, First Baptist Church, let's be faithful to this call. Close with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the time we've had to walk through this text and learn its principles. Pray that you would take our, our hearts now and mold and shape them like a potter. Lord, shape us as seems best to you. Shape us as, as, as you will so that we can be maximally fruitful for your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Hi, this is Andy Davis. I hope that you've enjoyed this sermon. For more of my resources, please go to twojourneys.org. And may the Lord Jesus Christ bless you as you continue to serve him.